22 of Barack Obama's first speech as the President of the United States, his victory speech, I think, hopefully, I might be in a little picture here, um, bulletproof glass on both sides, about 10 or 15 feet high, and uh, so, so that no one snipe at him from the nearest skyscrapers. 240,000 people gathered in Grant Park, Chicago to hear him. It's a hard job, I'm sure, being the President of the United States, but it was a truly moving moment. There were people crying in the crowd, and I can still remember some of the chains of phrase that he used. The language, the location was one that had seen violence uh, before and was chosen deliberately as a kind of celebration of of him becoming a president. All sorts of references to Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Kennedy. It was an amazing uh, thing to stay up to listen to. I don't know if you've ever been to a, a, a large function and uh, someone has to give a talk and a hush descends. very significant. When, and there's a large number of people there and a hush descends to listen to the one who's been appointed to speak. The speaker's introduced and those present, like we were waiting for Carl before, wait with bated breath to listen to the words of the speaker. Well, I want, I want you to keep that idea in, in mind as we go through this psalm because that, that is the sense that we have as we come to this psalm here. Today marks the first Sunday of New Year, as we've said, and I, and I, wonder, I want us just to linger here in this psalm, because the speaker here, who is introduced to his audience, and the hush that descends as those who are gathered wait to hear him speak, all point not to a winning politician, who may or may not deliver on the promises that he makes, not to, not to an inspiring hero who defeats all the odds to stir people's hearts and deliver change. The one who speaks here is not a politician, but God himself. This one, the mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God will come and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice, and the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is the judge. What an amazing introduction. <laughs> they played music for Barack Obama. What an introduction for, the, for God himself to take the stage and begin to speak. Well, I want to... Um, this, this psalm, as you can see, breaks into three sections, verse 1 to 6 that we read there is really introducing the speaker and then God speaks 
to two separate groups of people. From verse 7 down to verse 15, he speaks to one group of people, and, and, and we'll give them a name in a little while, and then from verse 16 down to verse 21, he speaks to a different group of people, two different groups in humanity. And then there's a conclusion there that we'll get to. The reason I'm drawn to this today is I, I really hope that this psalm can shape the way that we approach a new year. To hear God speak, not a politician, not some other great hero, but to hear the word of God himself. And for us to gather to hear him speak into a new year and shape our attitudes. So let me, um, let me think about introducing the speaker uh, first of all. And we, we might well ask, who is the speaker? What is he like? And uh, the first thing I want to say is that this, this is the sovereign Lord speaking here, isn't it? There's a lot we could say about verses 1 to 6. I hope I don't take too long with the first bit because I want to spend a bit of time thinking about what, what he actually said as well. But there's so much meat here. In verse 1, it's the, the names given to him. Sometimes when someone's introduced... Um, they, they list out the, all their achievements and all the letters after their name it's Dr. So-and-so, BSC, blah 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 and then the man stands up and it's probably a letdown I don't know but here the psalmist piles names upon names the mighty one God, the Lord El Elohim Jehovah God Almighty and I'm sure there's a hush that descends. The Lord, the sovereign king. This is a compulsory attendance as well. This isn't come if you come if you feel like it. The sovereign Lord is about to speak, and he summons not just one nation, not just all nations but the whole universe to listen to his sovereign voice. There's no opt-out. There's no excuse that you could bring to say, actually, I'm too busy. I've got some Christmas shopping to do. Or This is God, the sovereign Lord, who demands a hearing. And in verse 1 as well, the extent of his rule this isn't a politician from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets he is the one who reigns supreme over all his creation I think it's really important for us to hear the fact that God is the sovereign Lord we need to remind ourselves don't we constantly I was very interested this week, I don't want to be critical particularly, but I was very interested this week to hear the Archbishop of Canterbury. I always want to call him Rowan Atkinson. I know his name's Rowan Williams, isn't it? I don't want to make that mistake. Rowan Williams recommending the King James Version of the Bible uh, to people. Did you see that in the news in the last couple of days? Uh, he's doing this because it's the 400th anniversary this year, 2011, of the publication of the King James Bible. King James I commissioned a new Bible translation in 1601 and it was finished and published 
in 1611. It's a very, very worthy thing for the Archbishop of Canterbury to point people to the Bible. There's nothing wrong with that. And it is very true that the, this, this translation of the Bible has had an amazing effect, not just in our country, but across Europe and globally as well. So no issue with that. But just listen to what uh, Rowan Williams said this week. He, he said this, You may be the sort of person who feels you can make sense of your own story in your own terms. Or you may feel there's only one big story and it's about money and whether I've got a job tomorrow or whether my children can afford higher education. However, for people to make sense of their lives, it helps to have a strongly defined story in the background that tells us that we all matter. And this, this is what he said, whether you're a Christian or belong to another religion or whether you have nothing you'd want to call a religion at all, some sort of big picture matters. If we're going to talk about a big society, it will need a big picture. A picture of what human beings are really like and why they're so unique and precious. This year's anniversary is a chance to stop and think about the big picture and to celebrate the astonishing contribution made by the, the Bible 400 years ago. I, I, I don't want to be too critical. It's a great thing for the Archbishop of Canterbury to recommend people to read the Bible. But I couldn't help feeling when I read that that it is far too apologetic. Did that strike you? It gives the impression that you may find your thing and the Bible could help you. It gives you the impression of a God who is weak and one possible way to find truth among many possible ways if it's your thing. I can imagine a politician saying that. But Christian leaders are not politicians. Christian leaders are to proclaim and declare what God says as truth. Take it or leave it. It might be relevant to you, it might not. Listen, Psalm 50 says, The mighty one, God, the Lord, summons the whole earth to hear His voice. He isn't just standing on the sidelines like a weakling. Wondering whether anyone will listen to him. He is commanding people to listen to him. Not because he is one possible way, but because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Do we not need to hear that in our modern, postmodern culture? <coughs> God is the sovereign Lord. Excuse me. Not only is he sovereign, but these verses tell us that he is shining. Verse 1 mentions the sun, the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. But then in verse 2, the psalmist says very eloquently from Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. The reference to Zion is important here. Zion is, it means a number of things. Zion is really uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. The, play, the, the capital city of the promised land that God's people came to. This was a great name for Jerusalem. Zion. 
And, uh, and the idea here of the Jewish people being God's people on earth and Jerusalem being the centre of their world. It was known as the city of God. And in a sense God was said to rule from there. To shine forth from his throne in the city of Jerusalem in the middle of his people. But Zion as you'll know became a metaphor for heaven itself. The city of God Zion where God reigns on his sovereign throne. The image here is a very beautiful one. A sovereign king ruling in power. That's true. But with incredible goodness and fairness. We, we know, don't we, leaders who rule with power. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're good, does it? We, we, we know in our modern world of tyrants who have great power but who are cruel and brutal. This is the sovereign Lord who rules with unimaginable power and yet with incredible goodness and fairness. Here is a king who shines in his beauty. Here is a king who is dazzling in his perfection and righteousness. Here is a king who is, who, who is supremely desirable. One of the thoughts here, I think, when it, when, it, when it talks about God shining forth, I think one of the ideas here is the idea of self-sufficiency. Um, we've, we've had all sorts of issues recently with water, haven't we? Water supplies. Did, did you see that in the news this week? Northern Ireland. Big crisis with water in Northern Ireland. And the, the local authorities delivered a tank to a certain estate. And some vandals opened the taps overnight and let all the water run out into the street. So not only have they run out of water, but they, to, to just waste it. Mindless. But um, we, we've, we've had water issues, haven't we? We've had burst pipes at home. And uh, thankfully, in the outside uh, sort of toilet thing that we have at home, not, not the inside, we can turn the water off and forget about it till, till it gets a bit warmer. But um, when you go to your, your house and you turn the tap on, the water flows. But somewhere, there's a massive, great big pump, I don't know where, that's pumping that water. When you turn the tap on, it forces the water out of the tap. Here, here the thought is of God being self-sufficient. He, he shines forth like, like a fountain, uh, to change the metaphor. But there's no pump behind him. There's nothing behind God that makes him shine forth. Here is a fire that burns that needs no fuel. There's no electricity needed to keep him alive. God shines forth from within himself. He is the self-sufficient, sovereign Lord. He doesn't need anyone to keep him going. It comes from within. And he shines forth from within himself. I think also, think, think with me here, that this speaks, and, and this sets the tone for the rest of the psalm. I hope we'll see this. It speaks of great responsibility. 
because the, the phrase that God shines forth from Zion is, is that God rules in the middle of his people and he shines forth from within his own people he's ruling from within his people he shines and what that implies is a great responsibility for his people you get this idea the greatest responsibility of the men and women who lived in Zion was to demonstrate and declare the beauty and goodness and glory of this sovereign shining Lord can you imagine what it would be to God if they neglected him that's what this psalm's all about if they lived for other things and not for him God shines forth from within his people and what an awful thing it is when his people fail to live up to that responsibility actually this is what it means to be human isn't it we are created to show forth something to reflect something of the goodness and glory of God that is why we're here one writer said this God shines not only in Zion but he shines out of Zion in verse 3 we see something of his great power a fire rages in front of him and a tempest rages around him it's picture language to God's holiness signified by fire God's power and majesty signified by the tempest and in verse 4 he summons the whole world the whole universe in fact to hold his people to account for whether they have glorified him he speaks to his people in full view of a watching universe he has things for his people to know he has things for people who don't know him to know and it says in verse 3 the psalmist says our God comes and will not be silent here we have a God who speaks he's sovereign he's shining and he's personal he comes to speak I want to I just touch on this idea in verse 5 of, that before we think about God being a speaking God that this is what's drawn me to this psalm in a way I love that word in verse 5 where God speaks and says gather to me my consecrated ones I love the idea that God is a gathering God you get that sense in the Bible all the way through the Bible story God is drawing people to himself and drawing people to one another he is a God who doesn't want to divide, alienate, but to gather to himself a people. God is interested in community. It is a great thing that God is interested in individuals. And uh, that's a great thing about the Bible and Christianity. 
But there is something that transcends even that, that Christianity is corporate. God is a gathering God. Gathering people together. And I, this, this is where my thoughts were. It seems to me that this here is a great picture, amongst other things that it's a picture of, of what a church ought to be. God gathering his people together. The sovereign Lord. Almighty creator, father God. Drawing people to himself. Drawing people together. And gathering them together so that he can speak to them. So that they'll worship him. And rejoice together as they enjoy his goodness and grace and kindness. I think there's a great picture of this in the Old Testament. You remember when Moses led God's people out of Egypt into the desert. And one of the very first things that God told Moses to do, he gave him instructions to build what was effectively a tent for God to live in. And where did God live? Right in the middle of his people. And as they camp in the desert with the tabernacle in the middle, a mobile temple. And God's presence came and dwelt in the middle of his people. God dwelling with them and shining out from them. God gathering his people together because he longs to live right in the centre of their lives. Shining on them and shining through them into the world. I want to ask you, it's the 2nd of January today, I want to ask you this morning, what is your view of church? Do do you have a high view of what church is all about? Do you sometimes wake up on a Sunday morning like I do and think, oh no, not again. (laughs) Sometimes you do, don't we, because we're human. I know in our house there's seven of us to get up in the morning and get out to church and sometimes I wish church was in the afternoon so that it wasn't so hard to get out early. Sometimes it's hard, isn't it, for us to focus and to see church as a high and lofty privilege. Look at what um, the psalmist says in verse 3. I love that phrase when the psalmist says, Our God comes do you get up on a Sunday morning and think, oh no, it's church again today? Or do you get up on a Sunday morning and think, God is coming to meet with his people? Can you picture in your mind's eye a local church like this one being like that tabernacle in the desert where God's pe- God himself is gathering his people together to live in the centre of their lives. The sovereign Lord comes. Do you you get up on a Sunday morning with that sense of excitement and anticipation and expectation? Our God is coming. What will he say to me today? It's more than that though, isn't it? What will he say, not just to me, but what will God say to us corporately? God is gathering his people to himself, speaking and challenging and correcting and encouraging and inspiring. A church is not a club. 
It is a living and dynamic organism where God is gathering his people together so that he can live in the middle of them. These are God's people, God says, by covenant sacrifice. That meant something in the Old Testament, but it means even more in the light of the New Testament, doesn't it? The thing that makes the difference is is the sacrifice that Jesus made. What is it that makes a church? What is it that brings people into God's family? It is Jesus coming into the world. It's his sacrifice, his death, isn't it? On our behalf. When God's people who are his by covenant sacrifice meet together, God is gathering his people together. And every local church is part of that. What a privilege. What an enormous, high and lofty privilege it is for God himself to be gathering us together as part of his family. Someone has said that God doesn't have a plan B in in this world. The church is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. The church of Jesus Christ is God's plan A for this world. Every local church is part of this great gathering together. And you, you can sit here today and every day in 2011 and, thank, and, and say, even now you can say in your heart, thank you Lord for gathering me together with your people. Speak to me. Speak to us. Come and make your home among us here. There's a lovely phrase that you sometimes hear older Christians um, say. I don't don't know whether this is going to be forgotten. Um, But it comes to the Bible. Some of the old ones. I've heard old preachers say this. They'll preach. And then at the end they'll say, And the people of God said... Some of you are smiling. You sometimes hear that said in church. And and some of the old ones who who, who know that phrase will, will shout a triumphant Amen. That actually comes from the Bible. There's a lovely picture of this in the book of Nehemiah. Just turn with me. Keep your finger in Psalm 50. But go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, here God's people are recovering uh, after a time of brokenness. They've been in exile. And uh, you'll know in the book of Nehemiah they rebuild uh, the, the city walls. The temple's been rebuilt. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, it's page 492, a man called Ezra brings out effectively the Bible. And all the people gather together and uh, look at what it says in verse 5. Ezra opened the book, the Bible, the Word of God. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. It's good that you don't have to do that, isn't it? (laughs) All the people, they stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen! Amen! 
It's a, it's a, it's a cry of agreement, isn't it? <coughs> and they bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's a few names in verse 7, so we'll skip over them. But in verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Can you see what's going on there? They're being gathered together by God to hear God's word so that they'll worship him together, corporately. God's truth, the sovereign Lord shining on them and through them. What a great uh, example of a, of a good church that is gather to me my consecrated ones well let me encourage you to have a high view of church and to see that God has designed church for all good gathering us together grafting us into his family so that he can live in the sense of our lives together one final thought, just very quickly, I just want to touch on verse 6. This, this is like a court really, isn't it? And um, it's incredible that it says here, the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for God himself is the judge. One final thought here is that God is right. There, there's no debate here. All creation watches the heavens themselves wait with bated breath. And when God opens his mouth to speak, every creature in every place has to bow and say, that's right, that's true, that's good, that's great, that is excellent. The heavens themselves declare his righteousness. Everyone has to say, that's perfect no one will be able or even want to appeal to a higher court than this one God who sees all, who uncovers all who lays everything bare who sizes everything up will in the end as he opens his mouth speak what is right and true and pure and noble and excellent and the heavens themselves proclaim his righteousness and goodness. Well, who does God speak to then? That's a big introduction. The sovereign Lord, shining Lord, a speaking Lord, gathering his people to himself. What does God say? It's important that we listen, isn't it? <coughs> to what this God wants to say. Well, there were two groups here and uh, I thought this is really interesting God, God has something to say to those who do the right thing with no heart and to those who do the wrong thing with all their heart and that's an interesting kind of mix here God has something to say to his own people and, um, and the first danger for Christian people for believing people is, is, is to go through the motions of religious activity without the heart being engaged there are people who love to do the right thing but they don't love God himself 
And that's the first group. And uh, the danger for the other group is that they forget God altogether and just replace him with something else, as if he doesn't matter anyway. Well, let's uh, think about doing the right thing with no heart, first of all, very quickly. Um, There's some tremendous uh, eloquence here in this psalm. And I think both of these groups, the issue is that they misunderstand things about God and uh, it's really important to think about that isn't it that the way we think and the way we live and the way we speak will always be affected by our view of God if we misunderstand what God is like then it will cause us to have mixed up behaviour and uh, I think both these groups misunderstand something about God and the great danger here in this first group we're just thinking about verse 7 Uh, down to verse 15 first of all the great danger for these people is that they're doing the right thing with no heart they've begun to see God as a kind of needy boring killjoy who is distant and cold God wants sacrifices let's just do them if that's what God wants let's just do them if that's what he's pleased with Let's just get on and do it. It's interesting, isn't it, that God says in verse 8 that he doesn't rebuke them for the sacrifices that they're making. It's not what they do. What they're doing is right. The thing that is bugging God here, if I can say that reverently, is that their heart is not in it. I don't rebuke you for your sacrifices. After all, God had told them to bring these sacrifices the issue is they were relying on just doing the right thing with no heart or feeling God is interested in what we do but he's interested in how we do it God doesn't want heartless duty He wants you, me, our hearts to be engaged. It's very interesting what God says. He piles up arguments against them here. And this is a message maybe for some of us to realise and learn again that God is not needy. We hear a lot about needy people, don't we? And it is possible for us to misunderstand God and think that somehow he is needy and deficient, incomplete and um, that he needs something from us and that if we don't do our duty somehow God himself will come crashing down God's language is very clear here and he, he, he effectively says to them, I don't need anything from you there's almost a note of mocking at their arrogance to think that somehow God could need something from them I have no need of a bull from your store or goats from your pens why? every animal in the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills I made the whole world you think that I need your sacrifices 
I know every bird in the mountains, the creature of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do you really think I'm the kind of God that wants to eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? These sacrifices were meant to help you not fulfil some gross need in me. How can the great sovereign shining Lord find satisfaction in animals being killed? And if he did need them, he wouldn't appeal to them to bring them because he owns the whole lot of them anyway. I've told you before, when, when I was younger, I was in the Boy Scouts and um, I remember, I've got a picture of this somewhere. It's quite an embarrassing picture. I remember going camping to, in a badge in the Scouts and me and another chap we had to do it on our own to qualify for this badge. No grown-ups. Packed up all our stuff. And I remember having a bright orange rucksack that was almost bigger than me. And we walked up Newbrook Road near Bolton to where the scout camp was. We went to the supermarket. We had our sleeping bags and everything we needed. I think one of the things we had to do was cook our own tea in this wood and then camp overnight. And me and this other boy, I think his surname was Fo- I don't remember his first name, Foxy. No, it's amazing, isn't it? 20 years ago, 30 years ago. can't remember his first name. And uh, what a sight we must have looked carrying what looked like the whole house on our backs, walking up this road to this campsite with the kitchen sink and everything, probably about 12 or 13 years old. You know, sometimes that is what we look like as Christians. We... we we're walking along the road feeling as if we're carrying God on our backs I must do this and do that and do this otherwise God will come crashing down it's ridiculous isn't it do you know I want to be careful what I say here do you know it makes no difference in one sense to God our praises don't make God bigger Our lack of praise doesn't make him smaller. He is not needy or deficient. And some Christians can live the Christian life with this great heavy burden thinking that we're carrying God himself on our backs. As if we don't do this, Christianity itself will come crumbling down. As if it all depends on me. This this is a case of Christian ministers, this is. Uh, thinking that the whole of God's church kind of rests on my shoulders nothing could be further from the truth it isn't my church, it's his church we need to be liberated from the sense that this is a burden that we're designed to carry because it isn't maybe we could uh, flick forward into New Testament into another sermon that uh, the Apostle Paul preached in a great city of Athens Uh, Acts chapter 17 and uh, he he was wandering around Athens and found various altars and he says this in Acts chapter 17 verse 24 the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands and he is not served by human hands 
as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else sometimes in the Christian life we have this idea that God needs us and um I don't know where that comes from. Maybe, maybe it's this bizarre obsession we have in our culture that, that you know we want to feel uh, special and, and that we're important. I, I think biblically we get this mixed up, and um, there are, uh, there's, a, there's an American writer who coined a great phrase and said, you know, the whole point of creation, the whole point of being human, is not that God is making much of us but that God is opening our eyes and enabling us to make much of him that is a different mindset altogether we're so self orientated aren't we, does God love me it's all about me how I feel and we've become obsessed with ourselves and we've taken our eyes off the sovereign shining Lord who speaks and it isn't that God views us as not special but God's design is to take our eyes off ourselves and lift our eyes to him he isn't needy there's nothing that we can do that adds to him or makes him great or greater than he is what God is saying to his people here in this first group is I don't want your dry dead dutiful sacrifices what I want is your hearts I want your affection I want your spirit to rise up in joy and worship and trust and love and respect I don't want you to do your duty I want your heart to be engaged I've told you this story many times I don't know if the, uh, the, the wonderful illustration John Piper uses of uh, he, 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 des- he describes it as his wife coming home on Valentine's Day uh, with, with a dozen red roses and she knocks on the door uh, he, sorry he, he comes home with a dozen red roses what am I talking about and he knocks on the door and uh, she opens the door and he's standing there and she knows he doesn't need to knock what on earth are you doing and he pulls out these roses from behind his back happy Valentine's Day dear I love you and the wife goes all coy like women do. He says, oh, why have you done this? Whoops. And he says to her, I'm just doing my duty. And Piper said, you know, that sums it up. That he, my wife would grab hold of the flowers, wrap them around my neck, slam the door in my face, and shout down the road after me, go and learn some manners. Because we, we all can tell humanly, a wife doesn't want her husband to just do his duty. What she wants is for him to rise up in affection and love. And I think for some Christians, that this scene here, what will it be to stand before God and for God to say, why did you do the things you did? And for our answer to be, I was just doing my duty. It's what you wanted, wasn't it? And for there to be no heart engagement. That's the challenge really of this faith section, of this psalm. Well, in the midst of all this, God gives them a great promise. And um, 
It's in verse 14 and verses and verse 15. This is true religion. It is good to do our duty. He doesn't condemn them for that. But it is a great thing to engage the heart. Sacrifice an offering of thankfulness to God. Fulfill your vows or promises to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honour me. The right way round for this relationship is for us to rely on him. It is not the case that he relies on us. I want that to be a strong message for us as we move into this new year. That God is not needy. We are needy. And the greatest honour that we can pay to God is to come to him in faith and lean upon his goodness. Sometimes in previous years we've, we've had a sort of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like a church verse for the year. I, I don't think we did it last year. Shame on me for that. But um, I, I'd like us to take this verse into a new year. And uh, so I've, I've printed these off as little cards. And uh, it has Psalm 50 verse 14 and 15 on there. And that's something you can stick on your mantelpiece, stick in your Bible. There's a few printed off on the table at the back. And um, let, let's take uh, that idea and sentiment into 2011. Here is a word from heaven that the essence of true religion is to call upon God for help. Isn't that incredible? Doesn't that speak of kindness? Here is a God who is fire and tempest who says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I'll deliver you and you will honour me. There were people in the Gospels who came to Jesus and said, they, they wanted to know what their duty was, and they said to Jesus, what must we do to do the work that God requires? And Jesus' answer was, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. That is the essence of true religion. To rely on him. To make him your home. To have faith and trust and confidence in God. It's an amazing thing for that to be the essence of true religion. One uh, old writer says this, There is no way in which we can honour God more or show more clearly that we truly confide in him than by going to him when everything seems to be dark when his own ways and dealings are wholly incomprehensible to us and committing all into his hands. God's people honour him the most when they receive from him rather than try to give to him.
our troubles though we can see them coming from God's hand must drive us to him and not drive us from him we must acknowledge him in all our ways depending upon his wisdom, power and goodness and refer ourselves wholly to him and so give him glory in this way must we keep up friendship with God meeting him with prayers in our trials and with praises in our deliverances a believing Christian shall not only be graciously answered as to his petition and so have cause for praising God but shall also have grace to praise him Matthew Henry well very quickly let's look at this second group verse 16 to the wicked God says I'm interested in that phrase wicked because of what God says first of all it's very interesting this because the first thing God says to wicked is what right have you to recite my laws which implies that they were reciting God's laws 